Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Today, our guest is Mark Moffitt. Mark is a research associate in the Department of Entomology at the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian Institute. He is also one of E.O. Wilson's last students. And as I've talked about in this program, E.O. Wilson is uh, one of my heroes. And from reading your book, Mark, I take it he's one of yours, too, in addition to being your advisor. Oh, yeah. I bought uh, his book, The Social Insects, when I was in junior high school for a dollar from the Science Book Club. It was awesome. Yeah, that book, along with the other two in the trilogy, uh, Sociobiology and On Human Nature, had a really strong influence on me. And I'm hoping we can get a chance to talk about those books uh, during our time today. Today, we're discussing your book, The Human Swarm, your new book. I'd like to begin by actually how I first came across your name, and that's by seeing your photographs, first in the uh, Department of Entomology at the Smithsonian and then in National Geographic. So my impression initially was that you only did photography, but then I began digging a little more, and I see in addition to the human swarm, you've got a number of other books. So you sort of straddle this line between science and art that I think is, is rarer these days. Yeah, Corey, I think that has like been really important to me. I'm kind of a uh, an antiquarian item. I believe in the 19th century uh, idea of like thinking across disciplines, of getting people together to talk about about things across disciplines. It's part of the fun. I think artists are experts at conveying emotions, and we need that to uh, get the job done in sciences. Now, you know, it's not enough to just convey statistics about species loss. We actually have to make people respond to it, that they care about it. So it's really a part of the fun in my life, just trying to figure out how to make connections and do the connections, try things out myself. So at the beginning of the book, you do something that many people tried to do before, and that is to say what's special about human beings, what distinguishes us from other animals on the planet. Linguists propose linguistic explanations or theories of what makes us different. For example, that we're the only animal with complex language uh, that has recursion, the ability to produce indefinitely long and highly structured sentences. Philosophers have said that we're the only rational animal. Yours is a kind of unusual proposal, and it fits with your self-identification as an explorer. What makes us different in your view? Well, we're all animals. I see us as immersed in nature. So I, I see us as the same, but uh, different in unusual combinations of ways. So language certainly is something that's uh, unique to us. There are elements of it among animals, but it's unique to us. Certainly storytelling and immersing everything in stories is part of well, what we do with language, and that becomes unique with us. But I I'm particularly became interested in the idea of identity and identification originally with societies, and now we've branched out and identify in much more rich ways today, but still primarily, I think, with our societies and how that ref- reflects our uh, interactions with people around the world, uh, both for the good and the bad. You say that what is really remarkable, one of the really remarkable things about a person is that they can walk into a coffee shop and not get attacked and torn to pieces. Yeah, or 
uh, or run away in terror, or at least want to walk up to each individual and figure out who they are. We can be neutral about others. And that's something that most other vertebrates can't do. And for some reason have been sort of over uh, ignored by other biologists, this different uh, approach we have that allows us to have strangers in our lives, which is something a chimpanzee or even a bonobo can't do. A chimpanzee would go crazy in a choppy coffee shop of chimpanzees it doesn't know. Uh, but we, in fact, pass, you know, in New York here, thousands and thousands of strangers every day and nothing bad happens. Mark, can uh, dogs do this? Well, dogs have uh, been bred by humans to live in our societies, and they certainly respond to uh, humans in the same kind of way. They respond very positively to memberships. And of course, uh, I should back up and say that most animals don't have societies with memberships. The great majority of species don't. They get along just fine, either being social at times or not being social at all. Uh, dogs come from a background of uh, membership in societies called packs, and uh, their behavior has altered over time to accommodate humans and to each other. So when I read your your comment about being able to walk in a coffee shop, I have to uh, admit that I thought about a few personal experiences I've had, which didn't quite work out all that well. You know, when I was growing up, in Massachusetts uh, in the 70s, my, my mother had the idea that we should spend a little time in the South. One time we were driving to Mississippi to see my uh, father's family. And one thing that they underscored to us is that we should not stop in Alabama during that trip. And another time, uh, this was about 25 years ago, I was in Washington State and we were traveling, a friend and I, to Vancouver. And we stopped in an IHOP in Bellingham, Washington. To give you a little more details, this friend of mine was white, female, and uh, a lesbian. And we walk into this IHOP in Bellingham, Washington, and the place goes silent. And we stood around for a minute or two and realized we probably needed to get out of there. And after that, we began to talk about this a little bit, and our discussion was we, clearly they were uncomfortable with the thought that we were a couple. But I think we asked ourselves honestly, would they be more upset if we were a couple or if they found out that she was a lesbian? So it's clear in some cases the humans are not that accepting. And you've got a long discussion in the book about in-groups and out-groups. And my impression is when you come across a kind of phenomenon in people, you often think about animal analogs and ways in which we may be behaving like other primates or other animals. What's your thought about the times when this ability to move into different groups doesn't work? Well, there are a couple of different aspects of that. Part of it is regional, and that goes back into our prehistory. Uh, Hunter-gatherers mostly lived spread out in small uh, camping groups, but they were still part of a greater society. If you ask them who they were, they would give the name of a group that could be uh, up to a couple thousand individuals spread over a territory. And they felt like uh, one group. They would act as one group when they met their neighbors. But still, at the far end of the territory, they wouldn't necessarily know what was going on. And cultures could change, uh, ways of dressing, uh, lingo, and so forth. And when they got together, they might not necessarily be comfortable with each other anymore. 
And now that we have more communication going on in a more efficient way, as our societies have grown, for in part for that reason, uh, bigger, and we can be comfortable with a broader array of people, but there are still regional differences. And then, you know, going back way in time, those regional differences could lead to societies severing apart. So part of the question is when people become so uncomfortable that the society will break down and uh, form new societies. Or uh, usually divisions, in the case of hunter-gatherers, into half. Um, the other aspect of that is the humans that are facing something that is truly unique across creatures and that no animal has an ethnic group in their societies and early humans didn't either. So these differences between us uh, are treated in our brain sometimes as if we uh, belong and don't belong, even if the uh, rules of citizenship say that we do. And this kind of stress between how our brains register each other and the rules of the society as a whole can you know, reach a, a peak in cases of immigration and so forth. This is a dissonance in our society that we're facing all the time, particularly in times of stress. Yeah, you have a pretty interesting discussion in your book about immigration. And I, I wanna get to that in a little bit. Um, first, I wanna talk about your Wall Street Journal op-ed. And that, sure. that came out a couple weeks ago. We'll have a link to that on the show page. And there you emphasize that the importance of markers for group identity and how important those are. I guess the idea is that to basically fit into a society, you've got to signal that you are part of that society, and that applies even to humans. Yeah. So the, uh, and this is what uh, distinguishes us from a lot of other vertebrate animals and uh, something that really had not been emphasized before in biology. Uh, the... A chimpanzee is not comfortable with strangers because a chimpanzee literally has to know as individuals every member of its society. And that limits its society membership to a rather few individuals. There's presumably some limitations in cognitive ability to keep track of everyone. So uh, these vertebrate animals, including chimps, have societies of a few dozen up to a couple hundred individuals. But humans, once you use a marker, once you use some kind of cue so you can glance and not even take someone in fully, or individuate them, as psychologists would say, once you have those kinds of cues, you can be comfortable around more and more people. Those are the identifying traits that you need to know at least that they belong, that you have certain expectations of how people are going to behave. And that's one of the driving forces that allowed us, that seemed very uh, simple, but it allowed us to eventually form large societies. It's been really overlooked uh, uh, by biologists. It's more of an issue that is confronting psychologists as they look as, at identities and in-groups and out-groups. So you see this is playing out in current politics, as far as I can understand. Um, in the debate over immigration, you bring up the fact that it's pretty important for people who want to come to this country, any country, to begin to look and act like they do. Is this something you think that people are aware of, or is it something that they learn over time? And is it something you think that might actually begin to ease the difficulty of someone you know, coming to assimilate to the U.S., say? Well, there are lots of, uh, been a lot of options across human societies, but basically 
the reasons that ethnicities don't uh, occur in other species is that uh, societies don't freely merge. When you look across species, once societies form, they stay apart. So the fact that we have all these different groups living together in a society now is an indication that something different has happened. You don't find that kind of group in early hunter-gatherers. You don't find ethnic groups, races, in early hunter-gatherers. The early hunter-gatherers could take in refugees, they could take in mates from other societies, and it's that, it was that capacity that I think was the starting point for our ability to take in larger proportions of other uh, groups from neighboring uh, societies and cultures. The, the people coming in, a mate coming in would be expected to learn the language and some of the identifying traits, some of the things that were more important to the people there. Uh, but they, uh, that such a person would never be able to take a, a, all of them in. Uh, uh, he or she would still, you know, probably have an accent, probably still not know how to dress correctly or, or have the gestures down of the local people and so forth. The differences would remain. And this balance between being the same and different has resulted today with emigration and uh, in all kinds of variations within societies, which uh, leads to this mental confusion sometimes about who belong, truly belongs and who doesn't. The awkward thing about being an American is if you ask someone to picture an American, who, whatever their race is, they're going to picture, it, it turns out, a white male person. And uh, this kind of identity difference and the, particularly the importance of the dominant as ethnic group has, been, has played out throughout history. So I want to I want to zoom back a little bit because I think your perspective is pretty unusual. You know, when you talk to a historian, they're constantly noticing antecedents to events that happen at a certain point in time. Not not the idea that history repeats itself, but often there are variations on a theme. When you begin to look at events in in human behavior, how do you begin to analyze? Do you begin to look for similarities with other animals? I just want to sort of get your thought process, try to understand how you would approach something that you see as a, an unusual phenomenon with humans. Well, let's see. Uh, I started off thinking about animals and found myself going more and being drawn more and more into what is now being discovered in psychology. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have had uh, large sections of the book uh, read in advance by some of the leading psychologists like Roy Baumeister, uh, Marianne Brewer, Marilyn Brewer. Uh, you know, there were a, a bunch of psychologists that really uh, put their mark on how I was thinking about these things. And so I don't think of myself as uh, being distinct from any particular group of uh, scholars in this. It was more of a for me, managing perspectives from different fields and trying to get people, hopefully, to read the book no matter what field they're coming from. Because, of course, uh, my mentor, E.O. Wilson, Ed Wilson, uh, was attacked for uh, bringing biology into the social sciences. But I think it's just as valuable to bring the social sciences in, into biology. And in part, that's what I've done. I've, I've introduced a lot more psychology than biologists are used to thinking about. Mark, would you characterize yourself as an evo-psych person? I suppose, yes. Uh, the trick is, for writing this book, I really didn't want to worry about too much about some of the issues that are considered central in that 
point of view. There's a lot of discussion of group selection and evolutionary pressures and so forth. And I actually kind of avoid getting too deep into the evolutionary arguments. I think, in fact, they, I, I'm worn out by them. There have been lots and lots of books on them. I'm more trying to uh, express what I see as the structure of societies. And if people want to take that within their own discipline, for example, evolutionary biologists to look at the origins of these things and how they would have genetically evolved, that's up to them. But uh, uh, in fact, part of the pleasure, pleasure was looking at some of the variations between societies purely from the point of view of uh, practical merits. You know, a lot of things uh, that are parallels between ants and humans have nothing to do with intelligence. Uh, there's no reason to be insulted by the fact that ants are in fact more like us than, um, and modern humans than our chimpanzees. No chimpanzee has to worry about uh, highways and infrastructure, division of labor, assembly lines, you know, com complex teamwork, agriculture, all these kinds of things that are, ants are doing reflect not uh, the intelligence of ants or the fact that they genetically uh, programmed more than we are, but uh, more importantly, the fact that they can live in very large societies. Unlike uh, chimpanzees and some of these species, species that have to actually know each other, ants don't, and so like us, they can have societies of tens of thousands, millions, and sometimes billions, and once you have that, you have to deal with public safety and health issues. I, I, don't know if you've visited uh, chimpanzees in the wild, but they're not really into uh, sanitation and public health. Ants have to be. There are ants that have, with large societies, they have sanitation squads full-time at work. But let me ask, you believe that the complex behaviors of ants are under genetic control? They're not cultural evolutions that are outside of genetic control? Well, it's not true to say that ants are entirely have their culture under genetic control, nor that humans don't. Ants, in fact, do have a fair amount of learning. We're finding more and more about that. There's a lot of individuality among ants. There can be hardworking ants and lazy ants. There can be ants that get to know a certain part of the territory and get very efficient at harvesting in it. There can be ants, uh, for example, leafcutter ants that get efficient at chopping up certain species of trees and seek them out. Uh, so there are all these individual variations uh, that will require learning, uh, but they're certainly more limited in ants. Okay. So, you're, I mean, your, your primary interest is not whether these complex behaviors, for example, like pro-sociality or openness to strangers are under genetic control. It's just uh, whether a particular species or civilization has it or not. Exactly. And I think it's important to sort of lay the groundwork of what we do know. Uh, for a book like mine, of course, I'm covering so much ground that there's going to be a lot of uh, holes and gaps and so forth. Uh, so I'm trying to fill them in and, uh, and maintaining a certain perspective on them that's my own as well. But, you know, these kinds of arguments go down this, uh, this path where we're suddenly just talking about whether warfare is genetic or not, which I find uh, it's been going on for too long, and it's more interesting to figure out when things like Russian warfare occur, under what circumstances, and, you know, let the theoreticians worry about the genetics and probably come up with great ideas. It's just not the way my brain works. Let's actually talk about warfare a little bit, because it's sort of a significant part of your book. And 
you've got this interesting term, de-chimpanzeeization. Oh, that's actually, uh, I think, uh, Jane Goodall's term originally. Okay. And that's analogous to the term dehumanization uh, for people that often occurs when you have war. Yeah, no, it, uh, it occurs all over the place. We can dehumanize or infrahumanize, which means uh, see people as a lower level of human. And we, it turns out psychologists are finding we do that all the time. We work past it. Our conscious brains uh, overcome these little biases we have, but they tend to be there, unfortunately. And uh, one of the real issues of the book is how new for societies form. And I argue that that is a discipline that's been totally overlooked. Societies do break up and form new societies over time across species. Uh, that happens in different ways. And it's a matter of turning the familiar into the foreign is the way I look at it. And how that happens depend on, depends on the species. And the dechimpanization, uh, or however you pronounce it, that Jane Goodall, I think, originally described, was, came about because of the horror she experienced when her chimps, uh, which she saw originally as part of one just continuous community, suddenly turned friend into enemy and two societies split off of one. And then she recognized that chimps did have uh, territorial limits and society borders and memberships. That wasn't clear to her before then. It had been uh, hypothesized by uh, Japanese researchers. In any case, uh, what was horrifying to her is that this moment when the familiar, the chimpanzees that were part of the society turned into the foreign, suddenly turned into this bloodbath. Over the next four years, there were continuous deaths of one group by another, including by individuals who had been best friends. And this psychological transformation, which you can see in the breakdown of human societies as well, is something I think we need to know a lot more about. Did anything drive this, this division of the, these, this chimp society into two groups that get, Goodall could identify? Well, the chimp, it turns out chimpanzees and bonobos, or other close relative species, have society divisions very infrequently. And it turns out that's probably true of most vertebrate animals. And in the case of chimps, it's probably once every several centuries, judging by genetic information. And so divisions have been seen very seldom. Uh, originally by Jane Goodall, and now within the last few weeks by John Matani in Uganda, second division of chimpanzees. Uh, so his information is going to be much more thorough because he was expecting it, and he had gathered, uh, you know, he has a lot more field researchers, assistants, and so forth. What seemed to be driving her situation was she was feeding the chimpanzees bananas, uh, to get them to come where she could observe them. And they started competing over those bananas. And that uh, seemed to drive the, the, these two groups apart. The groups were there originally, though. And part of the process, when you look at this and study it across species, uh, and particularly in uh, primates, for example, is that there's originally some kind of subdivision uh, some cultural uh, subdivision in humans you might describe, a regional group, and those can be there for generations. So the chimpanzees had them for years and years, and uh, they separated in 
only at one dramatic turn they separated and formed these two distinct groups. And what happens at that moment is unclear. As I say, the competition involving bananas might have been important for her. Uh, in Uganda, John Matani's group uh, has been separated into two subgroups for many, many years and just split in half, and he's still trying to figure out what happened to cause that final uh, severing, severing. So is it thought that Goodall may have actually caused this division through her own actions? It could be that she pushed it along very, very well. But as they say, the subdivision, subdivisions were already there. Data uh, analyzed recently from her studies have shown that they were there all along. So most likely, they eventually would have split apart. And that's shown by the fact that these subgroups form in other primates and eventually split apart. And so uh, her uh, society, community, you, we, they call them, uh, wasn't uh, that big. It certainly could have grown more. And so it could be that population pressure is usually the instigator of these things. But her, in her case, simply mm, producing a competition over food may have uh, set the whole thing off early. So one of your theories is that uh we tolerate foreigners much more easily when resources are plentiful. And you have examples of this with wolves and other hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, do you think that—first, I'd like to get your more expansive thoughts on that, but also I want to understand whether you think that these sort of divisions tend to happen when you find resource uh, comp competition over resources. Well, societies uh, in general among animals seem to be based on uh, uh, joining these groups based on some kind of uh, personal uh, gain by the members. Uh, you can look at gr group uh, level uh, uh, evolution as well. But uh, in, in general, it seems to be that uh, societies tend to be pretty intolerant of each other across most species. And when they are tolerant of each other, it's usually in species where there's little resource competition, like bonobos are believed not to uh, have much in the way to fight for and when it comes to their food and so forth. So the question becomes how to overcome that, whether that is inevitable or not. I don't think it is, but it's, it becomes strategically much trickier uh, when there's, uh, there are a few resources around, uh, given that one society can potentially grab more of them than the other, uh, right away you have conflict. You know, one of the uh, experiences I had living in the States and living on both coasts was, uh, you know, a, a big difference in how well integrated the West Coast and the U.S. was to the, compared to the East Coast. The East Coast, in many ways, seemed very balkanized to me. You had ethnic groups living nearby each other, but much more segregated. Uh, there were pretty severe lines often in, you're from in New York City or in other cities. And that was much less true on the West Coast of the U.S. I'd always thought that human behavior is, in some ways, somewhere between bonobos and chimps, as far as our tolerance for others and our tolerance for and our willingness to have conflict. It seems like there's a fair amount of variation in humans for this kind of tolerance. But do you find that ever in other species? 
well, as I say, other species don't have ethnic groups. So, so the sort of problems we have within societies are rather unique. I mean, we get a lot of gain uh, in terms of creative potential from having all these groups together. And we manage to put up with each other and even get uh, lots of friendships going despite these uh, separations into groups, which our minds do uh, automatically and very fast. We, 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 we recognize groups all the time as we're moving around uh, the world, including entering the coffee shop. Uh, but at least we have the potential for all kinds of possible interactions. And I can't really lay claim to knowing uh, why certain societies end up parsing their populations in different ways. Certainly, the, I, I think you're right. The West Coast, to me, the, you know, the comfort with uh, people you know, standing in the bank line or wherever you were just seemed very comfortable. In New York, uh, there are more uh, segregated na neighborhoods. That not, isn't necessarily a bad thing. We like to be around people like ourselves, uh, including personality types and not just ethnicities, but all kinds of similarities to ourselves. Those are choices we make all the time. As long as we're interacting successfully and well with other groups, it doesn't seem to matter. And some research suggests that uh, uh, groups get along best when they're either well separated or well mixed. It's sort of when things are hazy in between when some some uh, more tensions can arise. And looking at this, studies have looked around the world at that kind of pattern. Mark, do you have any specific predictions about human societies and immigration? What's going to happen in the future? Uh. I have the prediction that it's going to be popular and unpopular over time, and it's just always been that way. We are now in a period of feeling threatened uh, for our jobs and resources, and even for, sometimes for our lives by outsiders. But you know, that was true in the nineteen going back uh, the nineteen what nineteen sixties, nineteen tens, eighteen sixties. You can go back. In fact, uh, some people have suggested Peter Turkin has suggested cycles of fifty years for these kinds of problems, an intergenerational thing going on where uh, we get stuck into uh, uh, this feeling of not being comfortable with others in the room as much as we were before. And immigrants are a primary uh, source of uh, threat in that sense because they aren't, they are completely foreign. And the whole idea of having immigrants come into a society, as far as I can tell, is a relatively modern idea. The last few centuries, uh, there may have been some instances in Rome and earlier, but for the most part, people entered societies because of some kind of coercion and dominance. Uh, they weren't just freely admitted. Uh, to uh, join in the streets with everyone else from the start. And that's what immigrants are essentially allowed to do. And that's been part of the strength of our country. Uh, but it's, it's something that uh, rouses our psychological, our psychologies in a ways that we still need to figure out how to control, particularly as they say in times of uh, threat or uh, competition. Steve, do you have predictions about immigration? Well, you know, we're entering an interesting era. I, I think 
when Obama was elected, you know, people were very optimistic that we were entering a kind of post-racial America. I, I thought that was a little bit too optimistic. You know, Mark, I, I'm curious whether you think we'll ever reach a kind of completely post-racial society where people look back and say, oh, yeah, 100 years ago, people were obsessed with these really trivial differences between groups and how silly that was. And uh, now we're all past that. I, I think the counter argument might be that we're a little, it's hard, it's somewhat hardwired into us. And so even with a very strong kind of cultural evolution in that direction, we'll never fully lose a kind of in-group, out-group preference based on superficial characteristics. Yeah, I think we're going to find those differences no matter what they are, even if we uh, cross marry and so forth uh, into the future, we're still going to pick out groups. Our brains do seem to do it automatically. Even a three-month-old child uh, recognizes others of the ethnicity of its parents and responds more positively to them. Uh, in fact, uh, Children, child psychologists, uh, some of them talk of uh, children as being little uh, stereotypical machines that, uh, and you basically grow up learning how to cover up those differences and negate them as much as you can. But the trouble is they never go away. Even the most positive uh, liberal person can still make errors. So doctors famously still prescribe drugs uh, most and most effective as uh, uh, most to uh, uh, whites in America. Uh, ironically, this may be one of the reasons uh, for the uh, current problem with drugs among poor whites in America is they've been overprescribed compared to blacks. But um, uh, the tr as I say, what this means is the, we show these biases all, all the time without even recognizing them, even if we try hard. In fact, if we try hard, we tend to, to bring up biases just because uh, the elephants in the room becomes even more prominent for us. I'm pretty, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of in the middle on this point. I'm a little bit uh, pessimistic about people ever getting completely beyond these things, because I think many of them seem very deep in, in animal cognition. And insofar as we're animals, we share a lot of these tendencies to identify people as similar to us or different from us. But there's a fair amount of change going on in society. You know, I go to my, I drop my daughter off at her preschool. Between a third and a half of the kids in her class are interracial. And it's not clear to me how those kids see the world, because the groups that they now belong to didn't really exist up until a few years ago. So I think it'd be actually be kind of an interesting experiment to see someone like my daughter, who's you know half African-American, half Bulgarian. I mean, who's her in-group? And if that's an increasingly common phenomenon in the States. Uh, I remember when I was at Stanford 30 years ago, the largest uh, quote-unquote ethnic group there, uh, minority group, was actually interracial kids, and that was California in the mid-'80s. And you're finding something very similar in East Lansing in the 2010s right now. I honestly wonder how these phenomena would, was, are going to apply to kids like that. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and it depends uh, of their on their ethnic mix and other things. And in a large part, we don't know. Uh, for groups that had a history of being mistreated, like the Blacks, you know, this one drop rule remains in our heads in which we perceive a person as black, even if they have a tiny proportion of uh, African genes in them. 
but the more important thing here, and I think the one you're uh, thinking of, Corey, is the fact that we can override these things. And I think we are moving in that direction. These groups are always going to be with us. Our memberships are important to us. They give us a sense of meaning and validation. Those include not only ethnic uh, foods and cuisines and other things we like because we belong to a particular group. And uh, we, we're not going to lose those. They're going to be important to us. It's a question of how we treat each other and particularly how we respond to the emergence of differences, regional differences, local differences, whatever they are, uh, because in the past, differences that have arisen have led to the breakdown of societies. Uh, and the question is, uh, do you squelch these differences? That doesn't seem to be possible. As differences emerge, as cultures change, there's gonna become points when people don't feel like they belong with each other anymore. And that's a very big problem. And the long-term, in terms of thinking of societies at least, so, Mark, uh, we had a guest on some time ago um, who is a, shall we say, an adherent to the philosophy of the Unabomber. He's very anti-technology and anti-modern society. And I think very central to his worldview is the idea that uh, we evolved primarily as hunter-gatherers and therefore modern society living in these dense urban settings um, is actually uh, quite bad for us and prevents us from thriving. And I'm curious whether you find his thesis plausible or not. Um, uh, well, it certainly is a novelty for us. It's a relatively recent thing. And it is based a lot more than, you know, I'd like on uh, dominance differences, differences in status between people and so forth that weren't present in hunter-gatherer hunter societies. You know, and hunter-gatherer societies are often looked down on as sort of childlike and infantile things, but they did, and they were based on uh, forms of interaction that seem very foreign to us, but are still built in our brains. We're still capable of them. Uh, hunter-gatherers uh, were very egalitarian. Everyone was equal. Women had a big say in things. They also were really into sharing. In fact, a successful hunter often didn't eat any of his meat. He gave it to everybody else. And this is true around the world. These are universal patterns, it appears, for people living these, what we call, banned societies. So, heck, I wouldn't have minded being in such a society. It seems pretty good to me. In fact, they didn't have to work much. Uh, they, uh, you only needed to do a certain amount of work today and you had a lot of time for conversation and gossip. They weren't into materialism. Maybe if you're into materialism, you'll want to be in a modern society. Maybe if you're wealthy and you've got power, you certainly will want to be in a modern society because hunter-gatherers didn't put it up with it. Uh, so as a person, I guess you'd have to decide what you want. <laughs> but uh, our societies do seem to... Uh, function today, and it's pretty amazing that they do. And I would say that's because we had these attributes, including this allowance for differences in power, prestige, wealth, uh, materialism, and so forth, even uh, as early human beings. Uh, and these traits would come up 
in situations that were useful at the time or functional for that society. I think we've always had this full range of possibilities. We just now express it at a larger population than we did before, at least some of those possibilities, the, the less fair ones, unfortunately. I, I think your characterization of hunter-gatherer life is similar to our previous guests, and that's part of the reason why he thought uh, modern society was extremely bad for us, uh, having hierarchies and um, inequality. and But also, I think for him, I think it was a big deal that you would spend a lot of time around strangers, actually, uh, that it would be better to live in a small community where most of the time you saw people that you were very close to. Well, that's certainly true. That is a difference, but only to a degree. And what I point out in the book that uh, is important to remember is that we always did live with the capacity to be around strangers. Even these early hunter-gatherers, as they said, were spread out over space. They couldn't all live together because the game animals they hunted uh, didn't allow it. They had to be out in small camps hunting uh, in smaller groups. Uh, and they, you know, they uh, didn't necessarily know the people at the far end of the range. There are indications throughout uh, the literature that in, even when societies were a couple thousand individuals, and Corey Apicella is uh, one person today studying uh, uh, a group of hunter-gatherers who says she, they don't even know the hunter-gatherers in their society uh, at the far end of their territory, they, you know, even though there are a couple thousand of them. So this capacity to know to be around strangers and comfortable with, a, with them is, I, I think, a universal human trait. Um, but certainly now we are overwhelmed with them. And yet we're comfort more comfortable with them than we like to admit. You know, you were saying, Corey, that you can go to far parts of the country or, or, or be an ethnic group uh, where things aren't quite comfortable for you and things won't necessarily uh, always be easy in that coffee shop. But uh, in fact, it's amazing how readily we deal with others, including foreigners uh, nowadays. Uh, our capacity to live in this uh, existence is really um, uh, extraordinary and still needs to be explored. Uh, our identities are now really complicated in ways that hunter-gatherers never imagined, and that leads to a great richness in our lives as well. So I wouldn't deny people the right to say that modern societies are superior or that hunter-gatherer societies are superior, because that's up to their perspective, I guess. Can can you say a little bit more? I know you, 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 I think earlier you were saying you're a little bit atheoretical about these things, but why is it that humans are more open to strangers uh, and cooperation? Um, is it just a consequence? I, I think you're saying it's not just a consequence of our general intelligence because, for example, ants have that capability, I guess. Although I guess in the ant case, they're all closely related to each other. But, but what is your explanation for how it arose, I guess, between chimpanzees and ourselves? Well, <clears throat> that's really interesting because, uh, in fact, these markers, as I call them, these little cues that tell us, or signals that tell us who belongs and who doesn't belong, are very low cost and don't require any commitment from us. You can uh, simply uh, have a password saying that I am part of the group as you enter your group, and uh, some birds potentially have that. 
And I would say that's likely the case uh, originally for humans. You would simply have some way of identifying yourself as part of the group. Whether you're known or not is almost independent then because you can be a known person and mistaken. Uh, but you know, if you're on a basketball team where everyone's wearing the red shirt, you don't have to know that that's Joe. You just throw the ball at the guy with the red shirt because he's part of your team. Uh, these cues really simplify uh, uh, the, how much we have to expend in our brains all the time. They make life cognitively easy for us. And so there's no reason for those kinds of things to happen way back in history. And uh, in fact, chimpanzees have something that approaches that. They don't uh, have a red t-shirt to indicate who belongs to their society, but, and they have these cultural differences, but they don't use them to identify who belongs. Uh, so a chimpanzee that cracks a nut with a, uh, a rock in one community and they don't do it in the next community, if uh, somebody doesn't know how to crack a rock with a nut, they don't uh, attack them. Uh, these aren't used to indicate who belongs and who doesn't, but they have one thing that might be used that way, and that's called the pant hoot. It's the sound that Jane Goodall makes when she's trying to impress an audience. And this hoot, this oh, uh, marvelous noise, carries for miles. And within each community, they come up with their own hoot. They copy each other. And they don't appear to use it to indicate that I'm part of your group, uh, don't worry about me. They use, it, they use it to tell who belongs from a distance. They can hear off in the distance, there's a pant hoop from our group there, a pant hoop from foreigners here. And, uh, but you can imagine a very simple change where you start using that in a regular way around other individuals to indicate their membership. And there is one story uh, uh, about that, if I may, and that's um, a story of uh, uh, Andrew Marshall at the University of Michigan. And he was studying a group of captive chimpanzees in, on an island down south in the US. And they ha had a pant hoot they had all agreed on, but one male in that group was uh, incapable of pronouncing it correctly. He couldn't get the accent right. And they wouldn't let him feed, and they eventually drove him into the moat and he drowned. And so there's an indication of what might well be uh, the use of uh, a signal by a chimpanzee to indicate uh, I belong or I don't, even an individual that's well known in that case. Um, we're coming towards the end of our hour. I'd like to get a sense of where you think your this approach, this kind of synthetic approach to understanding human behavior, animal behavior, uh, has come in the past forty years, and where it's continuing. You know, forty years ago, when Wilson uh, wrote on human nature, it really was up for grabs whether human behavior was under genetic control or it was learned. And I think he convinced a fair number of people that uh, that we do have deep commonalities with other animals, and that a large part of it is under genetic control. I think my impression is you take a lot of that for granted. Where do you see this type of synthetic research going in the future? Because a lot of research has become increasingly specialized, and your work is very, very synthetic. Yeah, well, the goal of my book, as I think I may have said, is just to try to get, I'm hoping to get people from dis different disciplines to read this thing, because I uh, actually went, uh, went to quite a few people 
across fields to get their opinions on how I should express these things. And to me, the big opportunity is that kind of uh, consilience is what Ed Wilson called it, the possibility of bridging fields. Because as we increasingly become specialized, we're becoming less and less likely to solve problems that require knowledge across specializations. And uh, my sense of it, as I uh, uh, spoke slightly about before, is that there's a need for a passage of information that goes two ways a lot more. The idea that uh, biology is showing us the genetic roots of things is all very well and good, but to figure out problems, we have, we have to bring psychology and sociology into biology, and same with anthropology. Across these different disciplines, we need to figure out how things actually work, and uh, you don't necessarily have to think of things as being genetically determined to uh, get a lot of mileage out of that. So as I, I say, I've been kind of avoiding that to a large degree. There's an implication that if uh, we're assessing each other automatically and almost instantaneously, that there has to be a genetic basis for it, all well and good. But I'm not interested in that genetic basis for it as much as I am in the implications of the fact that we all uh, see each other that way and put each other in groups that way, what those implications are for the success of people within societies and relationships between societies. Let's talk a little bit about your photography uh, as we close. I'm curious, when you go into a new society, how do you go about, do you, first of all, do you photograph people? Because I've seen many of your animal photographs, but I don't think I've seen a photograph of you by you of a person. Fortunately for me, I've had the opportunity to live with various tribal and uh, hunter-gatherer groups. But just as I can dive and appreciate uh, underwater nature without photographing it, because I know there are so much better photographers out there for the underwater realm, I tend to focus on animals on the above ground realm and take in people uh, and socialize with people as I travel around without photographing them that much. So that's my explanation for it. I do tend to focus on animals, but I've also been intrigued everywhere I go about these differences. And I remember one situation when I was an undergraduate, I was an assistant uh, to a coleopterist looking for beetles up in the Andes in uh, Peru. And we were driving around at 13, 14, 15,000 feet, higher than any of the mountains in the 48 states here. And in the distance, you'd see something that looked like a patch of light green. And you get closer and you realize it was a village covered with moss and everyone in it was wearing a certain costume and it had a certain look. And you drive on and then hours later, you'd come to this next isolated village and they'd have a different costume and a different look. And you know, as a person who grew up in cities in a big country, this is a remarkable, was a remarkable thing for me. And I started to think about human groups in ways that I might think about animal groups because I do think this in-group, out-group identity that psychologists talk about uh, crosses over to other species in ways that can teach us something about our own. Did you ever try to photograph the people you met? I've had a few photographs of the people I met. I've uh, photographed uh, uh, Machagenga Indians, 
at what's called the Devil's Garden in uh, Peru and the uh, uh, tribal people uh, eating tarantulas. They're delicious, by the way, uh, in Venezuela and so forth. Uh, but, you know, the photography wasn't the main thing for me. I'm only interested in photography if I have a particular story to tell. Otherwise, I don't even want to pick up a camera. Do you know how uh, heavy and annoying cameras are? You know, cell phones have made things so much easier. When you uh, get back to those old-fashioned cameras and all those piles of gear, um, I wanna, if I have a story, I get all excited about it, and I'll pull out that gear. Mark, uh, before we run out of time completely, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about E.O. Wilson. So when you were his student, uh, was he still involved in the sociobiology controversy or had that all passed? No, he was still working on issues. He was working with a guy named Charles Lumsden, uh, now up in Canada, a person trained in physics. And they wrote uh, books about genes, mind, and culture, trying, showing the connections between them. And so this was still a, a big part of his life. Uh, and he, he's shifted over certainly more to conservation today. That's, that's clear. But at that time, he was balancing between different fields, as he's always done, including doing lots of work on ants, on humans, and conservation when I was a student. Did Wilson ever talk to you about what it was like going through the difficulties he had to endure early on with sociobiology? Uh, well, only uh, uh, peripherally, I, I guess I'd say. He, he, uh, Wilson is an optimist to a degree that's uh, always astonishing to me. Everything is going to turn out. He's moving forward. All is, uh, all is good and making sense. And so he would look back on those things, as, uh, those uh, difficulties he went through, in terms of this positive outlook of building this uh, subject and his success at it. And of course, in the end, his positive outlook, I think, won because uh, in general, sociobiology, though it's been rebranded again and again, has entered the popular consciousness uh, uh, to a surprising degree now. Our ability to think about biology and so forth uh, has opened up whole new worlds for you know, people like me to start exploring ideas. Steve, do you have any other questions? No. Um, well, actually, so you were in you were at Harvard in the late '80s, is that right? Mid to late '80s. Yes, I always. My wife says I should wear a medical uh, band because I never know what year it is. But I started there at sort of like uh, at early '80s through, and then I into the early '90s because I was a curator of the ants there. Yes. And uh, did you ever interact with Stephen Gould? Oh yes, I did interact with Stephen Gould. So how did he get along with? Uh, your advisor? Well, of course, theoretically not well, but I saw them together once or twice, twice, uh, seeming to have a good conversation. So, you know, I would guess in, you know, pure strategic terms, they all sold a lot of books through their controversy and uh, <laughs> it was probably good for both their careers. Uh, but, you know, Ed is not someone to say any, anything negative about anyone. Uh, he's done it once or twice, but it's been unusual for him. He, he keeps that optimism going and, you know, they seem to get along in those moments. I saw them together pretty well. There, there was just an interview, I think, with Wilson in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And he's quite old, right? He's maybe close to a hundred years old or nineties at least. Oh, not 90. 90. Okay. Yep. 
Yeah. But still, I guess, pretty vigorous. Oh, he is. And, you know, I, I was at his 80th birthday and it only seems like three years ago. I was at his 80th birthday party. In fact, it was at, I was at three of his 80th birthday parties. It was actually embarrassing me. First one was at Lincoln Center and Yo-Yo Ma was playing. And uh, uh, I was sitting next to Alan Alda and Susan Sarandon was a couple down and all this sort of stuff. And I'm going, my goodness. And this is a guy, you know, uh, is not really into movies and popular culture as much as some folks. And yet he seemed to be enjoying himself quite a bit. And then I was at the uh, party for him. This is again, an 80th birthday party with his graduate students and that seemed like the real thing and i almost didn't want to show up at the third party i heard about because it just seemed like i would be even seen as a groupie as a graduate student to show up at three eo wilson <laughs> 80th birthday parties but i did at least poke my head in it was at the explorers club i walked upstairs looked around and he was sitting next to harrison ford and oliver Sacks on the other side and i he was having a grand old time so um, uh, it's amazing how, uh, how he's become a public figure. And uh, certainly today, that's important given, given his message on conservation, which is now his, his central theme. Well, thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and I think I speak for my co-host, Steve. It's been really illuminating. And uh, I hope at some point you'll be able to come back on the show. Hey, Corey, appreciate it. And thanks, Steve, also. It's been great. Thanks a lot for your time, Mark.